Now, you've probably heard uh, the joke before, but uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson decide to go on a camping trip. After dinner and a bottle of wine, they lay down for the night and go to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awakes and nudges his faithful friend, Watson, look up to the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replies, I see millions of stars. What does that tell you, said Holmes. Watson pondered for a moment. Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for a minute and then spoke. Well, Watson, it tells me that somebody has stolen our tent. (laughs) Sometimes it's what's not there that tells the true story. And that's no more true than in the book of Chronicles. Chronicles, in terms of storyline, deals with much the same story as 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, but with some major differences. There are some major things missing. It's a true account, everything it says is true, but it's edited to make a point. What point will come to a bit later on, but see if you can work it out as we go through. Again, with 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, this was originally one book, it's been split up since then, so we're going to be looking at it in one uh, altogether. So first of all, what's missing? The first thing that's missing in the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles is Saul and succession battles. Saul and succession battles. After the genealogies, which take up the beginning uh, of the chapters and take us right back to the beginning of the Bible, the book starts with Saul's death. There's no real account of the reign of Saul. It starts with the reign of David. And in Samuel, we saw that there were succession battles with Ishbosheth, but there's none of that mentioned here. So David takes over, and David is instantly king. David is instantly as well. In Jerusalem, it says that he moved his capital there. So there's no years in Hebron uh, mentioned, which again we get in Samuel. The southern kingdom, and especially Jerusalem, is where all the action takes place uh, for one and two chronicles. And it starts right back as the story first begins. And in place of Saul, there are nine chapters of genealogy. Now that's what puts most people off reading one and two chronicles. You know, you look at it, it's just genealogy after genealogy after genealogy. And we all know we're not supposed to, are we? But, you know, it's so tempting to skip it. But the genealogies take us right back to Adam. This book, in one sense, actually, although the most of the material covers Samuel and Kings, in one sense it covers Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And in that sense, it also broadens it out, in a sense, to it being a history of everyone. Even though the focus here is, is Judah, as we'll see. There are genealogies of the tribes of Israel with a special focus on Judah, Benjamin and Levi who made up the southern kingdom which was all that was left as this book was written. There's no genealogy of the tribe of Dan in the introduction. Um, Some have made that out to be a mistake but the chronicler is very careful throughout and decides what he puts in and takes out. It's interesting as well that Dan is also missing from the list of all Israel in Revelation. So we'll deal with that in a few weeks' time when we come to it uh, in Revelation. That's the first thing that's missing. The second thing that's missing 
is the sin of David. And instead of that, we get some details about temple uh, building. So there's no sin of David. Uh, Well, not quite, but there are no big sins of David. So significantly, in 1 and 2 Chronicles, there's no David and Bathsheba, no Uriah being murdered, no death of David's child. There is the counting of the people, but interestingly, in Chronicles, it's attributed to Satan, not to the Lord. In other words, this is viewed through the prism of the king and his people being attacked by the devil, more than a prism of God using it to judge uh, his king. And instead of all the issues with David, the chronicler gives us details that we don't know uh, from 1 and 2 Samuel. So, in 1 and 2 Samuel, we discover that David wanted to build the temple, but wasn't allowed to. We see the same in Chronicles. But what we find out in 1 Chronicles that we didn't know from Samuel, is that actually David sets the work in motion. He starts planning the temple. So from chapter 21 onwards of uh, 1 Chronicles, we have this huge section that is absent from Samuel. David gets stonemasons to start cutting the stone. He gets ironmongers to start making the nails. He puts aside all the materials that Solomon will need, as he's concerned that Solomon is quite young when he's going to be taking the throne and inexperienced and won't know what to do. He organises the Levites and the priests and the musicians and the gatekeepers of the temple, even before the temple is built. And the chapters, if you read them, read a bit like the end of Exodus, where Moses gives instructions about the tabernacle. And that's not the only link with Moses. Moses charges Joshua to take over, and in 1 Chronicles, David charges Solomon to take over. It's in 1 Chronicles 22, uh, 11 to 13, I'll read it to you. It says this, Now my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding when he gives you charge over Israel, that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing. For there is so much of it, timber and stone too, I have provided. To these you must add. Do you notice that? It sounds very, very like when uh, Moses and Joshua uh, get, well, Joshua gets his commission of what he's to do. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Which we said this morning is the most repeated command in the Bible. So it's almost like here we have uh, we have uh, Solomon being a bit like a Joshua figure, which we said last week sort of fits with Joshua and Elisha and Jesus. Here we have this son of David who fits into that pattern as well. Speaking of Solomon, there's another thing missing. Solomon's fall is missing in 1 and 2 Chronicles. Solomon starts well in both Kings and Chronicles, Though in Chronicles, again, there's no succession battles. There's no question that Solomon will take the throne here. Whereas in uh, Kings, Adonijah tries to take the throne. Solomon starts well, builds the temple, has great wisdom. But whereas Solomon fails in uh, Kings, he doesn't in Chronicles. The son of David doesn't fail, doesn't fall. Now, it doesn't say that he doesn't fall. It just misses out the story altogether. He edits it out. So there's no fall of the son of David 
uh, in 1 and 2 Chronicles. And then fourthly, Samaria. There's no Samaria, they'll be with us, are they? Samaria. In Chronicles, there's no northern kingdom. Well, okay, it's there. It's not completely ignored. It's not like it's you know, geographically disappeared. But it's not the focus. And there are no accounts of the northern kings, just the southern kingdom, just the descendants of David. So all the stories of the northern kingdom are missing. There's no Ahab, other than to talk about his dealings with the kings of Judah. There's no Elijah or Elisha, other than a mysterious letter sent by Elijah to Jehoram, a bad king of Judah, pronouncing judgment on him. Long after he's been taken on a whirlwind, so we're not, okay, we're not going to look at that right now, but you could do a whole sermon on that, couldn't you? There are prophets like Nathan who appear, but not the ones who are dealing with the northern kingdom. So those are some of the things that are missing in the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles, and it leaves us with some big questions. So secondly, when and where and why? So the first one, when, one of the clues as to what's going on in this book is when the book was written. The book was actually written post-exile, so after they got back from their exile in Babylon. In fact, it was probably the last book of the Old Testament to be written. The genealogies at the beginning of the book, some of them take you to six generations after the exile. So it was written much later. And in that sense, you could sort of view it as a commentary on all that's gone before. It's sort of looking back over the history of God's people and trying to make sense of what's happened. And in light of all that's been said, he's saying this is what it's all about. It's also the last book in terms of position in the Hebrew Bible. So it's placed right at the end of the canon. So as we have Malachi right at the end, they'd have two chronicles. So when Jesus talks about the blood that's been shed from Abel to Zechariah in Luke 11 and Luke Matthew 23, he's referring to a man called Zechariah who was murdered towards the end of two chronicles. So it's not just that in English it works as an A to Z, as an Abel to Zechariah, but here it will be from the first book to the last book of the Old Testament. So that's when... But what about where? Well, it means that in the Hebrew Bible, it's not included with the other history books. Again, with ours, it sort of gets gathered together with them and sort of put after them, isn't it? But actually, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, it's included with the writings, along with the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And that's a sort of signal that it's not supposed to be read like 1 Samuel or 2 Kings. Its position means that it's to be read with something else in mind and in a bit of a different way. So in a way, the way that it does this is it's a bit of a retelling of a classic set of tales. You're supposed to already know the story, and he's retelling it with a different spin, if you like. It's a bit like Shrek. I don't know if you've seen that film. Uh, Shrek, it was sort of quite big when I was quite young. Um, and Shrek really is supposed to be a retelling of the Prince Charming story. Except for that it's not the usual Prince Charming story, is it? So the ogre is the, the hero, and the, the prince is the baddie. The strange thing is now that quite a lot of children, they just get introduced to Shrek, and they think that's the model, and are a bit confused when they read Prince Charming and find out that Prince Charming is actually the hero. But Chronicles assumes that you've read Samuel and Kings, and it wants you to spot the strangeness of the story. It wants you to spot the things that are missing that we've just said. So it's not correcting it so much, it's trying to make a point with it. But what is the point it's making? Why is it as it is? Well the answer is that it's to point us forward. If Samuel and Kings present the problem, 
Chronicles presents the solution. It gives us an idealised David, a son of David who doesn't fall. Even the prophecy of the son of David misses out the bit where the son of David will be beaten with rods, for example. It's a wonderful picture of a wonderful king. And the point that the author is making is that this is what we need. We need the true son of David. And this is what he looks like. He's from the southern kingdom. He's from the line of David. He's a sinless one, a flawless one who does not fail. By his editing, the author gives us this picture. He edits the story to tell us what we need and to look forward to what is coming. So he's not doing a whitewash of the past, that's not what it's about. He's doing a wonderful painting of the future. This is what it could be. This is what it will be. The son of David is coming. The Messiah is coming. And this is what we mean when we say that he is the son of David. This is what it looks like. You see, the nation at this point had returned from exile. And the author is showing the people what comes next by reworking the history of the nation. So it's not a history book, though it contains real history. It's a future book, really. It's there to point the original readers forward. Which brings us nicely to our last point. Christ in 1 and 2 Chronicles. Whilst the book pointed the original readers forward, it points us back. Back to the one this book looked forward to. The son of David, of the tribe of Judah, who would reign forever, who would never fail, who would never sin, who would fulfil the prophecies made to David through the prophet Nathan. This is a book, in other words, about Jesus, the Messiah, the King. This book describes him by showing us edited versions of his ancestors, even right back to the beginning with Adam, reminding us that he's king of all. As we read this book, it speaks of David and his descendants, but we should let it speak of the true descendant of David, the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is not in every sentence of every king, but he's in the general thrust of the book forwards, a book that's moving us towards him. Other than pointing to Christ, though, and his first coming, it's worth letting the book speak about his second coming, too, when he'll be universally acknowledged as king. This book, actually, although the chapter that we have read sounds a little bit depressing, the book actually presents a really positive message of the future. And we should remember that as we consider the future, too. Even in that last chapter, it finishes with them coming back, returning from exile, which, if you remember, didn't happen in one or two kings. So the book presents a positive message of the future, and we should remember that as we consider the future too. Because on the one hand, Samuel and kings can be depressing as we see David challenged, we see Solomon challenged and sin, we see the northern kingdoms, kings that are awful, we see the northern kingdom going to exile. And there's a prophetic element to that. Mankind remains in rebellion against God and his Messiah. But we need to hold in the other hand the book of Chronicles, that the true king is coming. The son of David will reign eternally. The rebellion will end and people will accept his rule. And that positive vision should temper our pessimism sometimes. When we look around, the world can look like the northern kingdom, can't it, on relentless decline. And it might be. I mean, God might choose to turn it around and pick it back up. Who knows? But even as we see that decline, 
Let's keep the positivity of Chronicles in mind. The king is coming. Jesus will return. This will not last forever. The son of David, the true son of David, is coming back. And when he returns, there will be some other things missing in our world. No tears, no pain, no sadness. And all of this will be due to that son of David, which the book of Chronicles points us to. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture of the Lord Jesus that we see right at the end of the Old Testament. Father, thank you that as the Chronicle looks back over the whole of history, Father, thank you that the thing that he looks forward to is the coming King. Father, we pray that we too would look back to Jesus in the first coming and be thankful for him coming into the world. And Father, pray that we will have great optimism as we look to the future and know that he will return. He will come back. Every knee will bow and tears will be wiped away from our eyes. So Father, in a difficult world, help us to cling to this positive message, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.